Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. It goes without saying that COVID-19 has been a planet-altering event, similar to September 11th, 2001, but on a much larger scale and timeline. Yet, as Obama's former chief of staff once infamously noted, never let a good crisis go to waste, and COVID-19, like 9-11 and other such events, has offered opportunists and power around the world the chance to pursue a host of agendas that would likely be rejected by the general public under more normal circumstances. Such opportunism would not be possible, however, without the media, which manufactures consent for these agendas and creates narratives that link their implementation to the common good, which more often than not in the COVID era has been the professed promotion of public health. In the COVID era, as it was with the war on terror before, it is the media and propaganda that works to exclusively shape the public's understanding of an enemy they cannot see or touch, but that they are told lurks around every corner and in every crevice and can only be combated by trading more and more freedom for what is more often than not the illusion of more security. Joining me today to discuss the ins and outs of propaganda in the age of COVID and much more is Mark Crispin Miller. Mark is a professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University, as well as the author of several books on media and U.S. politics. He has long been a prominent voice in independent media, but many of the voices who gave Mark a regular platform to discuss his work on election integrity and the propaganda of imperialism have seemingly avoided giving him a similar platform to discuss his views on the COVID-19 crisis, and he is not alone in this regard. Since the onset of COVID, Mark has been fighting censorship and enormous professional pressure merely for teaching his students in a course on propaganda, no less, to do their own research and reach their own conclusions about relevant issues like mask mandates, as opposed to merely taking the mainstream media consensus at face value. As someone who is not only a scholar of propaganda, but someone who is courageously fighting against it at great personal and professional risk every day, there is no one I would rather talk to about the nature and future trajectory of propaganda in the COVID era than Mark Crispin Miller. Delighted to have you on the program, Mark. How are things where you are in New York? <laughs> well, I'm in the center here. Um, I'm in the belly of the beast, in fact, being at NYU, which which we can discuss. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think living in any um, blue city or region of the United States is um, far more difficult than uh, certainly than I ever would have imagined. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to whine about it, but it is worth noting that I am in a New York City that is unrecognizable. Uh, you know, the COVID crisis and all its various offshoots over the last year and a half, um, having hollowed it out and done something really astounding to the, the spirit of the place. You know, that's a long winded way of saying, I guess I'm okay. <laughs> all things considered. Right. Um, can I begin by, um, sort of answering a, a question that was implicit in your in your introduction sure absolutely yeah um you you i'm going to paraphrase you you talked about um 9-11 and the COVID crisis as catastrophes that have enabled uh, various opportunistic interests to reap the benefits and and have used the media um as 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 an instrument in doing mm -hmm. that and i would say that the media's uh role in all this makes pretty clear that this is not a matter of these catastrophes simply taking place organically 
and then these opportunistic interests, so-called, swooping in to uh, reap the benefits. You know that that's the view that um, you know my my uh, fr- friend uh, Naomi Klein takes. Uh, you know, disaster capitalism that these things happen; they're like acts of God. And then there are um, these malign forces that stand ready to swoop in and uh, again reap the benefit. Um, let's 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 go back in time to uh, what I regard as the the first major post-war crisis of this kind uh, that has had long-term effects that are nothing less than catastrophic, although we tend not to notice them because it's it's all happened so gradually, you know, and like by increments. And I'm talking about uh, JFK's assassination. Mm-hmm. That that was immediately and, and at first convincingly, as far as many people were concerned, portrayed as the... Um, unpredictable act, spontaneous and unexpected act of a lone gunman. Uh, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was supposedly this sort of Marxist nut uh, who wanted uh, notoriety. I mean, it was a little vague. But the point is that um, that the story, the backstory provided by the media uh, of Lee Harvey Oswald and his whole history was already in the hot little hands of all the editors and producers throughout the Western press. Right. When the event happened, right? I, I know you know this. I think I do think it's important to point out, though, that, that these things, these earth-shaking events are, are um, psychological operations, among other things. Mm-hmm. And that necessarily means you, you get the media ready uh, beforehand, and you keep the media ready uh, throughout, and that's what happened then. Uh, there was pushback eventually. What happened was that that you know the the assassination basically bowled everybody over. It was a it was an unspeakable trauma uh, at the time. You know, now we've, in a sense, sort of normalized it in hindsight because there were several major assassinations since. And so on, and, and and the whole story has been uh, clouded over by the myth of Camelot and so on. Uh, but the fact is, it was a coup, right? It was a coup uh, carried out by a range of uh, really frighteningly extreme interests, not just the military-industrial complex, but even uh, elements of the European ultra-right. It was a coup. Uh, they reversed the results of the 1960 election by design, and um, everybody was so rattled, uh, frightened, fearful. Uh, it was such a traumatic event, and it had the effect of making everybody regress, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lost their wits. That's what happens, you see. Now, especially back then, when we were still in the afterglow of World War II, which allowed us to regard ourselves as the saviors of the world from fascism and so on. And people still had, a, um, I, th- I would think, inordinate trust in, in the government and in the media. Um, back then, people were inclined to believe the official story. So at first, everybody more or less bought this. And, and there were a few extremely perceptive 
maverick figures who could see that there was something wrong with this story. And then when the Warren Commission report came out, um, those few mavericks could see that the whole official story was, was ludicrous. And then by 1967, uh, there were some books out, some of them bestsellers that, that really kind of systematically questioned the Warren report for a, a pretty large audience. This would be Mark Lane in his book, Rush to Judgment, uh, Sylvia Mayer in um, Accessories After the Fact, which focused on the media, a book called uh, Inquest by Edward J. Epstein. So, uh, you know, Mark Lane's book in particular was a bestseller. So, so the counter narrative was beginning to become permissible, but more importantly, before we even get to a counter narrative, you know, the official story was starting to crumble. And I'm bringing all this up because it really is relevant to today. The official narrative started to crumble and we had Jim Garrison, uh, the fighting, uh, you know, uh, district attorney, New Orleans had against Clay Shaw. As, as one of the conspirators um, behind the assassination, and it was getting a lot of publicity. Uh, Garrison was invited on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and he actually got the audience, the studio audience, over to his side. Johnny Carson was being, you know, duly skeptical, uh, rolling his eyes, uh, trying to be... Um, trying to debunk what Garrison was saying, you know, from a position of complete ignorance of all the facts. And Garrison, being an experienced prosecutor, was really able to sway the studio audience and, and presumably much of the viewing audience over to his side to see that there was something wrong with the official story. All right. What happened? What was the result of this, these signs that the official narrative was losing its traction? The CIA, in uh, early 1967, sent out its memo 1035-960, which uh, went out to all their station chiefs worldwide and uh, basically instructed them to use their media assets and political connections to uh, come out with uh, articles, statements, meant to discredit the work of people like Mark Lane uh, by accusing them of conspiracy theory, all right? This is, this is what's so significant about uh, the history of propaganda coming out of the Kennedy assassination is that it gave birth to, or well, it caused the, the very successful weaponization of that phrase, conspiracy theory, and the invention of the corollary phrase conspiracy theorist, which had never been used before in the U.S. press. The phrase conspiracy theory had been used from time to time. But from now on, both phrases were to be used more and more and more and more. And with the assassination of Martin Luther King and with Bobby Kennedy, throughout Iran-Contra, uh, throughout the... Um, uh, story that Gary Webb wrote about the CIA's importing cocaine into the United States, causing the crack epidemic, uh, certainly 9-11. Uh, in fact, every major state crime against democracy 
has always been accompanied and succeeded by a huge uh, new burst of uh, opprobrium, insult, derision, mockery, basically slandering people who had the temerity even to raise questions about the official story of any of those high crimes. Um, and, and it was so successful, it has been so successful, that we have all internalized those phrases. Um, how many times have you heard somebody say, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but... Yeah, prefacing uh, what they're about to say with that to avoid, to try and preempt that kind of derision you're talking about. Yeah, it's very exactly. common. <laughs> but then they'll say something perfectly rational. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the thing. So what what this has done, and this this is highly relevant to, to our conversation about the present, what this has done has made people distrust their own entirely healthy, rational suspicions of elite intentions. Not only is there nothing wrong with questioning those intentions and suspecting them of the worst, it is actually a kind of civic duty to do those things. And and I'm here I'm I'm paraphrasing the argument made by Lance DeHaven Smith in his landmark book, Conspiracy Theory in America, that I'm shamelessly plugging here. This is a book I, I invited him to write for the University of Texas Press when I was doing, a, I was editing a series for them called Discovering America. He wrote the book, and it is a terrific book, which goes through the whole history of, uh, of, of how, that, uh, how those two phrases were weaponized. And he makes a key historical observation, which is that um, it has had the effect, you know, not just of chilling inquiry into these various uh, what he calls state crimes against democracy, which is what they all are. But it's also actually affected a kind of change in American consciousness, because as he notes, America, you know, Americans were never averse to entertaining uh, really dire suspicions of the powerful, that, that the Declaration of Independence is actually a conspiracy theory from, from beginning to end. You know, some of the things they accused George III of doing, he, he wasn't doing. Many of the things they accused him, of course, he was doing. But, but if, if, if you, you know, um, unloosed today's debunkers on the Declaration of Independence, you know, they're working for Tory interests, you know, as I, I suppose you could argue they are now, you know, because <laughs> yeah. heavily involved in all this stuff. I mean, they would have t t uh, torn it to shreds, or at least they would have had a lot of credulous people thinking, oh, that's been debunked, right? So Lance goes from the Declaration of Independence through the, the Jacksonian era up through the 19th century, and, you know, ch uh, Charles Beard's book, I think it was in 1913, about the economic motivations behind the drafting of the Constitution. I mean, that was, I believe that was a big bestseller. Pe people, in other words, were perfectly uh, uh, willing to entertain these kinds of questions. They didn't simply fall to their knees and say, oh, no, uh, the executive branch is entirely benign. The president is good. Our big corporations are good. Our public health agencies all want the best for us. And if that was not that was not a reflex as it has since become in no small part because of that propaganda drive 
that was that was launched understandably in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, which is a, a, a really a, a turning point in our history, a turning point of such gravity that it's it's really hard to wrap your mind around it. Let, let me mention another book because uh, I want very much for your your listeners to know about it. It hasn't come out yet. Um, it, it is by uh, Hank Albarelli, who wrote the book uh, A Terrible Mistake. came out several years ago. Mm, about on the, Frank Olson? Right. Yeah, Frank Olson, The Seeming Suicide of Frank Olson. Terrific book. And after that, um, Hank uh, dedicated himself to this astonishing uh, research project uh, because he found out Basically, who, who ran the logistics in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963? Uh, it was Otto Skorzeny, the SS, uh, who had become an American asset, you know, a Hitler's favorite commando. He was known as affectionately in some circles. But what Hank has basically done is unearth this huge, really sinister network of, uh, former uh, fascists, ultra-rightists, who had uh, started practicing their trade actually in the 30s. So, so the, um, the whole story of the Kennedy assassination uh, as a coup uh, is, thanks to him, about to be um, amplified in a very, very interesting way. Um, it's, a, it's a massive book, a huge undertaking. Hank uh, died prematurely suddenly came down with, um, I guess it was uh, ALS, and the book was completed by a couple of associates. It's called Coup in Dallas. And I'm uh, fortunate enough to be reading the, uh, the galleys now. But I, I wanted to mention that because cause it helps us understand that all these, these events, you know, if we step back for a moment, you look at, at the assassinations of, of Jack and, and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and Bobby, and then the other traumas that have, you know, hit us throughout this post-war history, right up to today, which I believe has been coming our way, this crisis has been coming our way since November 22nd, 1963, uh, it, has, it has turned out to be a kind of a long-term assault on humanity itself on human autonomy, human society. Uh, But humanity itself, it is a eugenics, a eugenicist exercise that is really, uh, you know, profoundly connected with the uh, eugenicist work of Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, You know, uh, so it, it is urgent that we have the kind of conversation we're having now. It is urgent that we understand what the media's function is. It is urgent that we call it out. We call out the so-called independent media for their collaboration. Uh, because I believe that the whole history that I've very roughly recounted for you over the last few minutes, that this whole history has now reached its culmination. That what we're living through now, or struggling to live through now and, 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 you know, beginning now to fight back against in an effective way, just beginning to do so, uh, marks the moment at which these kinds of narratives, uh, start crumbling 
and uh, you know the necessary faith that one must have in the media and in our governments is eroding more and more. You know, so that it's only kind of a plurality who continue to believe what they're told. So this is this is a, a very very important moment at which I don't think anyone can afford to stand back and say, well, I'm not interested or I don't really think about that, you know. Right. So, well, I think it always had to come to that sort of point where people couldn't afford to justify being on the sidelines anymore for real change to actually um, have a hope of taking place because the the, the more um, the more easy it is for people to justify themselves that they can maintain the the comfort of their of their, um, you know, standard of living without, even if they don't like what's going on, if they feel like, you know, they, they don't want to have to step outside of that, you know, it it tends to, um, uh, make it difficult for, for them to become involved in any sort of activism, at least for a vast majority of people. Uh, but a lot of that, those comforts and, and that standard of living, um, is under direct attack. And of course, uh, you know, obviously, um, what we're seeing with the vaccine passport system, for example, is, a offering to return some of the freedoms that were taken under um, the guise of combating COVID-19 and, and being returned to them, seemingly being returned to them, but at a price, you know, as we uh, learned uh, about Israel's uh, vaccine passport um, and just the past couple of days, those that do uh, decline to get a third dose will now have their vaccine passport um, rendered uh, (laughs) useless, essentially, um, by October. Um, so, you know, it's uh, something that's subject to change um, at any given point. And this is, um, I really wish people um, that are tending to support the system would see that this is, uh, would see, you know, this through perhaps a different lens, uh, you know, without necessarily, like if this wasn't about vaccines and this was just about anything, you know, giving the government the power to, um uh, change what, what your freedom, freedoms are contingent on, um, in the ways that's being introduced now is obviously, um, disconcerting to say the very least. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the people, I mean, a lot of people, liberals and progressives, uh, and others, but, you know, pe- people of, um, of some means, you know, people who live in comfort, even if it's very modest comfort, uh, have always tended to regard what they call politics as something they can either look at or not. So, well, I'm, I, I used to be into politics and I'm not so much now. You know, now I'm more into fitness or my garden or yoga or, you know, I don't mean to be uh, snide about it. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the desire to not be involved in it. I mean, it, it is a mess. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, I, listen, my impulses are really all aesthetic. You know, I, I'm, I would rather be a musician or, you know, I, I, I wrote poetry. I mean, I got a PhD in English literature. I didn't do that so I could end up studying propaganda. You know, I did that out of a love of Shakespeare's plays. So, um, I'm not at all contemptuous of that impulse the way like a, a a Marxist Leninist would be, for example. I, I'm, I'm completely unsympathetic. To that kind of, um, you know, that kind of, uh, militarism or militancy. But the fact of the matter is, however we regard that impulse to look inward or to tend one's garden, whether we're 
hostile to it or we appreciate it. It doesn't make any difference. You don't have that option anymore, right? You can't just do that. You can't simply lock your door and go water your plants or go to your you know, potter's wheel or whatever it is you do because they're going to knock on the door and ask to see your papers. You're not going to be able to eat in a restaurant or work or travel or anything unless you get vaccinated. This is absolute totalitarianism staring you in the face. And if you have a family, you have to, you know, their welfare is at, is at risk. Your family is in the crosshairs. So I think it has partly come about, that is to say, this situation has come about in part because so many people have misunderstood what it means to have a political commitment. And in this, I'm including the left, maybe above all, you know, I'm, I'm including above all. As, as one of the worst offenders in all this, this is going to sound strange to some people, but, you know, Noam Chomsky. This is somebody whose works I have taught for years. Uh, I, I have communicated with him. I, I have long admired him. I regard his, a lot of his early work as, as indispensable. But this is someone who I realize now, uh, now that I see him refer to January 6th as an attempted coup, and I almost fell out of my chair when I heard him say this. Uh, and he says the Republican Party is the most dangerous organization on the planet. Uh, you know, he says these staggering things. He sounds like a shill for the DNC. I look back at his career and, and, and I am struck again, as I've been before, by his consistent uh, refusal to take seriously any of the evidence of conspiracy uh, for any major event, really. <laughs> any major event, right. From, from Dallas on, from JFK Dallas on, he poo-pooed the whole notion that there was any conspiracy there because he said it didn't matter. He's actually said publicly, um, so what if there was a conspiracy to kill him? Uh, who cares? said that publicly. Uh, a lot of people have been killed uh, by conspiracies. What difference does it make if, if it's the president of the United States? All right. Okay. I mean, we can answer that question on its own terms, but. Well, that, that's interesting. He makes that argument since he gives a lot of weight, as he should, to coups that the CIA did, for example, in Latin America um, or other places around the world. But one taking place within the United States domestically doesn't really seem to interest him. It's quite jarring, personally. Well, that tells us everything. <laughs> yeah, because he has always done very good work on issues that matter only to the left. So, uh, sure, he'll, he'll talk about nine eleven seventy three in Chile, for example. He'll talk mm -hmm. about Guatemala, Iran. Those are all distant, uh, as far as most Americans are concerned, and and it's a kind of antiquarian interest in a way, and it's purely academic. So you can get all worked up about it, but it's abstract. doesn't matter. Why not talk about it when it happens right here? Now, the fact is, Chomsky does care when certain people are killed as a result of conspiracies because he blurbed this excellent book called The Assassination of Fred Hampton, written by uh, one of the lawyers who, um, you know, sued the uh, city of Chicago. Uh, on behalf of Fred Hampton's family, it is a very 
good book, and that's a very worthy cause. But the only reason why Chomsky is willing to stand up and blurb that book is that most people don't care that much about the assassination of Fred Hampton. What I'm saying is that by rolling his eyes at the evidence of all these major state crimes against democracy, the murder of Jack Kennedy, the murder of Martin Luther King, 9-11, the thefts of our elections by Bush Cheney, and now uh, the COVID crisis and all that. He has consistently turned a blind eye to precisely those scandals that could conceivably mobilize mass resistance. See? Right. If he had actually helped the left to grapple with those things instead of, you know, encouraging them to look away, uh, this might be a very different c- country. But he, he is guilty, as far as I'm concerned, of a kind of selectiveness, whether it's based on his arrogance, his structuralist kind of, um, I'm using that term very loosely, his, his, his view that it's just the deep structure that matters. So incidental conspiracies are really beside the point. They're unimportant. Whether it's that, whether he's an actual asset of, of uh, the deep state, I have no idea. In effect, he might as well be one, you see. But but what I'm saying is that the, the, the that he represents a, a gigantic failure by the so-called left across the board to um, face this flagrant totalitarian threat that's looming over the entire world now it, it takes my breath away that 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 he and uh so many others would would be uh passive uh and silent in in the face of what's happening now well i think in addition to chomsky too there's a whole generation of commentators on the left as well that you know were inspired by chomsky and declined to probe into those areas all I would argue largely because Chomsky has also failed to. So I think it goes beyond um, Chomsky's own unwillingness. He's also influenced um, a generation of of commentators on on the progressive left in uh, independent media, even uh, for better or uh, for worse in this particular <laughs> in, in terms of this particular topic we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I, that's actually I'm I'm saying that I, I didn't put it clearly enough. I don't fault him just for taking that view per se. It, it, it is that he has misled uh, the left across the board. So he is by no means the only one to, 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 to this. I mean, we uh, I have this recent piece on Off Guardian, as you know, about this, a brief piece about, it, it focuses on Caitlin Johnstone, a, a, another figure I, I formerly admired and even championed when she was being really viciously attacked by, by these guys at uh, Counterpunch. Uh, now she, here she is, she lives in Melbourne, right? She's talk about being in the belly of the beast and she dismisses the great reset. She says she's unfamiliar with it and it bores her, bores her. And she said nothing about the, the biofascist crackdown on her own country, which makes her, you know, less suitable as any kind of, uh, guide or uh, I hate this expression, but role model, you know, as far as activism or journalism are concerned, she's, she's, you know, less relevant than the truck drivers who are trying to, you know, shut Australia down 
until the cops take their boots off everybody's necks, you know? How is it that the so-called left has taken these positions, you know? Uh, Aaron Maté, another person I admire, Aaron Maté is, is, is now all about vaccination. And uh, I've mentioned Naomi Klein already, uh, Tom Engelhardt. I'm naming names. These are people I was friends with and wrote for, you know, uh, uh, the Nation Consortium News, founded by Bob Perry, Covert Action Bulletin, uh, co-founded by Philip Agee, whose son Chris, another friend of mine, now edits the magazine. You look at these publications, uh, and and you you would think that they it's like Rip Van Winkle, you know, they're stuck in 2019. It's like they're asleep and still dreaming of 2019 and will not wake up. They, they keep harping on the same themes that Chomsky has always talked about, you know, U.S. foreign policy in Nicaragua, drone wars. we got to stop drone wars, threat to biodiversity by climate change. I mean, are you kidding me? These are sure they're in their each in its own way is, is, is important. But we are now being directly confronted and threatened by, uh, again, a totalitarian system, a global system, the likes of which the world has never seen, abetted by uh, or, or, or deploying a, 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 a kind of, um, you know, a surveillance system of, of hitherto unimaginable sophistication. I mean, we're being listened to even as we speak right now, Whitney, as you mm-hmm. know. Oh, yeah. All of us <laughs> are constantly under surveillance because mm-hmm. all of our communications are online or we have cell phones nearby. This is not conspiracy theory. This is not paranoia. This is a fact. Silicon Valley is, I don't have to tell you, is deeply implicated in this whole thing. Artificial intelligence is, is uh, you know, uh, an advantage that no previous oligarchy has ever enjoyed. And let me make a leap here. The left, so-called left, has been completely weaponized by this uh, globalist cabal, we could call it, you know, defund the police. Why is defund the police getting any traction? Why is Verizon, for example, actually uh, forcing its employees to study critical race theory and to get into the notion of defunding the police? Is this because Verizon is all about equality and diversity and, you know, (laughs) Freedom of individual neighborhood. I guess some people are believing that at this point, which is quite impressive. Yeah, impressive is that's a very charitable way to put it. <laughs> I try to be charitable. <laughs> defund the police. Defund the police. You know, the Smart Cities Network, which is a Soros-supported thing, that that entity supplied the cops that were calmly and methodically, you know, choking and beating uh, violators of quarantine in Australia. This was last year you know, acting weirdly robotic, you know, they weren't like pissed off cops, you know, uh, losing their temper and, you know, hammering people with nightsticks. I mean, we've seen that in, in many cities. This was much different. And I think it's because between globalist entities like that and, and uh, uh, robo cops, you know, those, those dogs, those robot dogs that, that will, you know, serve to identify uh, people's vaccination status and so on. I mean, this was like, a, this is straight out of an episode of Black Mirror. You know, it is completely dystopian. But, th- but the point I'm making is the defund the police, there's nothing left about it. 
in the traditional sense of a kind of uh, semi-anarchist left, a democratic socialist left that's all about civil rights and peace above all and freedom from censorship, you know, and, uh, you know, a, a kind of sane environmentalism, women's rights, uh, economic equality, God knows. That's what the left, that's what left means to me, right? I mean, I mean I'm 71. I marched against the war back in the 60s. I don't delude myself into thinking that helped to end the war. Something else helped to end it, which we can talk about if you're interested. But the point is that Black Lives Matter, defund the police, Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, all, all these things are part of uh, the um, globalist takeover that we're talking about. And the left has completely caved. Well, I think... Um in these particular cases, what they've tried to do is basically put a superficial veneer of leftism or collectivism in the selling points they're using to sell these various agendas. So in the case of defund the police, they're trying to frame it as a, as the way to combat police brutality, for example. But in practice, what is actually happening as a result of that is because there's less police officers. Uh, they're looking for cost-saving solutions, which more often than not are involving things like increased artificial intelligence, increased use of facial recognition, increased use of uh, your uh, civilian communications online, illegal surveillance programs, um, information sharing with the FBI and federal agencies as part of this new war on domestic terror that's also being uh, launched as we speak, um, um, and, and, and things like that. Whereas, you know, in the case of, um, you know, Greta Thunberg and stuff, a lot of that is for these uh, green New Deals that are essentially being designed by central bankers um, all over the world as a way to completely remake um, the economy and don't necessarily involve things that you think would involve uh, solving climate change, things like planting trees and things like that. They involve the creation of uh, carbon markets and uh, carbon tax credits and, you know, a whole uh, new class of uh, financial assets and also uh, the financialization of nature and things like that, things that progressives would normally not support. But there's a whole layer of uh, collectivist sounding propaganda that's being used to market the Great Reset. And I think COVID was sort of the way and the propaganda we've seen with COVID was sort of a way to usher that line of thinking uh, to the forefront, specifically among uh, people who identify anyway um, as progressive leftists. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I have many thoughts. On that. <laughs> I mean, and not only thoughts, Whitney, but very strong feelings about it um, because defund the police. All right. I know people who have... Uh, become very irate at anyone who won't support that meme, you know, or, or use it in a sympathetic way. All right. I'm in New York. Uh, my son, uh, lost a, a teammate, played basketball in, in high school. And, uh, he had this, his teammate was the star of the team and the kid was shot through the head, uh, during this spike in, uh, gang violence and street crime in Harlem uh, when the cops all stood down after the uh, uh, George Floyd incident. That whole thing was extremely dubious in many ways. But the point is, you talk to black people who live in neighborhoods that depend on policing, you know, they're entirely mindful of, of, of the, the problem that many of the cops are racists. But they don't go along with that 
idea of defunding the police, which has had lethal consequences for people in those neighborhoods, just as the uh, Black Lives Matter moment helped to finish off something like half or close to half of all black owned businesses in American cities, you know, shut down by the vandalism and arson that ensued immediately after protests and in the face of which police departments stood down. So, you know, you would think, gee, uh, it looks as if what's going on is an attempt to impoverish uh, small businesses, drive down the value of their properties so that big corporate players like Amazon and others can swoop in and snatch them up for pennies on the dollar. Mm -hmm. That's not a coincidence. That's not disaster capitalism. That's obviously something that's happened by design, you know, as Catherine Austin Fitz has observed, just as the so-called Green New Deal and the whole carbon mythology is, as you say, driven by a plan to uh, basically seize all of all nature and financialize it, you know, along with the remnant of humanity. And, and we can also shout out to Corey Morningstar for her, her investigative work on this subject. I mean, the people who point these things out keep their heads uh, in the midst of these intoxicating surges of, of romantic progressivism, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, Green New Deal, people are out there marching, defund the police. So there's a kind of, um, it's really a way in which the, what is now called the left, uh, or those who call themselves the left, really are the problem. I mean, they, they, I never thought I would live to hear myself saying these things, but they are now the problem. Just as, relatedly, the professions uh, have failed in a way that that has everything to do with the success so far of this grotesque um, plan to wipe out much of humanity and tame the rest through mind control and pharmaceuticals. The professions, and I, I owe this insight to uh, Denis Rancourt, the uh, Canadian physicist who's done so much great work on the COVID crisis and neoliberalism generally. You take a look at what has happened to journalists, what has happened to doctors, what has happened to academics. We can talk about NYU in a moment, and I guess most lawyers too. These are all professionals. This is the professional class. We have recently heard that... Uh, Vaccine resistance is especially high among those with PhDs. Okay, I would like to see uh, those numbers because from my experience, that seems extremely unlikely. It seems to me that people with PhDs, the educated people, are the most susceptible to this propaganda, as was the case in Germany under Hitler. Uh, if you read you know, Victor Klemper's marvelous diary that he kept from 1933 through 1945 and beyond, you know, a Jew living in Dresden because he had an Aryan wife. Uh, he managed to survive the war. His, his diaries are indispensable and, and, and really, really relevant to read right now because it's so similar. What's happening now is so similar to what happened then, but he notes several times and he's not the only one to point this out that those most inclined to parrot Goebbels's propaganda and to give vent to bursts of uh, 
you know, what people call anti-Semitism, and I call it Judeophobia, tended to be the educated, that working people, average people, were less vulnerable to this kind of thing and more skeptical of it. And I find that to be the case now. I find that, you know, people, workers, average people, see them in the street, you go up to their neighborhoods, they are not, they are not, you know, COVID zombies. They're not all masked up and eyeing each other warily and asking each other if they've been vaccinated and inclined to snitch on each other, filled with homicidal rage toward the unvaccinated. You know, the parallels with Nazi Germany are staring us right in the face. Uh, so I, you know, I guess I've wandered far afield, but I, you know, the fact is that, that, um, the left is marching for the wrong things and in the wrong direction. Um, the real marches that matter are those huge marches, uh, that are getting bigger and bigger throughout Europe. Uh, the kind of resistance that we saw in Guyana a few weeks ago, where workers just went on strike. The people just refused to put up with it. They would not put up with the vaccine mandates and the government dropped it. Okay. Now, I don't know what's in store for Guyana, what kind of punishment is coming, you know, what kind of uh, hurricane, you know, uh, made to order for the situation. But the fact is that those people are dissidents. Those people resisted. Those people are the people, you know, and it's supposed to be for the people that the left stands up. But what I see now is a left that exults in the suffering of the unvaccinated, you know, uh, that that couldn't care less about the 600 some people who are lying in federal prison on no charges right now since that so-called attempted coup on January 6th. It's another psyop, completely absurd. And they, they were all hauled off to jail. A lot of them are in solitary confinement. It's They're insane, being yeah. <laughs> subjected to barbarous treatment. And these so-called leftists are okay with that. Why is that? Because the 600 are in a, the, the other tribe. I mean, are we principled or not? I mean, you know, let, let me go off on this for a moment, this tangent. I mean, my body, my choice. Okay. Feminist rallying cry for decades. All right. I'm down with that. I happen to believe that a woman's right to choose is not just a woman's right to choose abortion. It also means a woman's right to choose to have children, right? So according to that, uh, uh, you know, in light of that principle, a covert or forced sterilization is every bit as egregious as or more egregious even than the state, you know, forcing a woman to have a baby and bring it to term, you know? But feminists don't, the kind of feminists I'm thinking of don't really extend a woman's right to choose beyond, uh, you know, uh, reproductive health, to use that uh, Planned Parenthood euphemism. Uh, nor have we heard a peep from them about mandatory vaccination. Well, what happened to the ideal of bodily autonomy? You know, the fact is that those feminists are unprincipled, you know, they don't really believe in the principle behind my body, my choice. It's right? selective, like you were uh, yeah. saying about Chomsky. It's like it only works for some issues, but they won't apply the same principle, uh, co I guess, cohesively, collectively no, to don't. other things, just to their, you know, a particular issue that I guess is safe 
um, for that particular uh, ideology. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you you can say you can level the same charge as they have against certain, um, you know, uh, we'll call them pro-life or, you know, anti-abortion activists, some of whom are perfectly okay with uh, the death penalty and the military, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, they have their theological justifications, you know, an eye for an eye that's in the Old Testament and so on. Nevertheless, uh, if we're going to step back from scripture and just look at the principle of not taking life, that life is precious, then you can fault some people on the so-called right. I mean, right, left, it doesn't matter anymore, but you can fault some of them, again, for inconsistency. They are not principled defenders of life under any circumstances. You know, some Catholic activists are. They are anti-war, they are against the death penalty, and they are against abortion, all right? You can respect that, you know? Very few people, it turns out, are principled. Most people are tribalistic. You know, that's a great point and becoming clearer <laughs> all, all the time, especially now, um, that yeah. people just identify more with their um, their tribe, really, than anything else. And a tribe is something, I guess, you can choose to belong to. Um, you know, specifically in the West, that isn't like, you know, a tribal uh, society on, on ethnic lines. It's becoming, you know, about ideology. That's right. And there's a class dimension to it, too. I mean, the so-called sure. left hates the working class. You know, that's some left. They hate the working class. They since they racialize discourse, completely racialize it. Uh, they don't even see the working class as a class. They see it as a bunch of, uh, you know, thuggish mouth-breathing white supremacists, you know. If you watch that abysmal film of Spike Lee's about uh, the Black Klansman, you know, there you have the white racists really depicted as subhumans. Uh, That's actually the working class. And that vision of the working class strongly appeals to um, a very privileged uh, upper middle class, you know, that has... Uh, a strong foothold in the professions, you see. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot, a lot of bigotry there. They hate, they hate the uh, working class. They hate Russia, right? Because they have completely swallowed this ludicrous conspiracy theory called RussiaGate, and they have lumped Putin together with Trump. You know, imagining Putin as a kind of Stalin, and then lumping that figure together with Trump, and then lumping those two figures together with his base, his awful base, you know, they hate the working class and they hate Russia. Some left. It sounds like the John Birch Society to me. And if you want to go even further afield, you could say that they are, they are in a, in a, in a pinch anti-feminist, right? Because they've come down really hard, uh, in favor of what they call trans rights, which in many cases, uh, entails the absolute nullification of important advances made for women, you know, legally and socially over the last several decades, uh, if you can, if you're going to defend the participation of biological males in girls and women's sports, you are essentially allowing uh, men, this is, you know, pre-surgical trans uh, women to take advantage of their, you know, superior musculature and lung capacity and so on. To, to scoop up all these medals and, and awards, besting women and girls who have worked very hard at their respective sports, you know, that is, that is a stroke of anti-feminism. To argue that 
biological males should be admitted to women's shelters or to women's prisons against the wishes of the entire population of that prison, including the female guards, how is th- how is that not anti-feminist? I'd like to know, you know. I believe that trans people should be treated just as respectfully and as and enjoy the same rights as anybody else, right? I don't think that the trans movement is an authentic, organic, grassroots movement. Well, I think it's being used for a, a, a separate agenda, obviously, um, because of the speed at which it's advanced and the uh, seeming, the, the reception it received in a very short amount of time it, when you compare it to um, other similar movements like uh, gay rights, for example, things like that, that went on for decades. And, um, uh, but, but what I find particularly notable about, you know, these issues, particularly today, uh, with this particular segment of the political left you're talking about, uh, whether it's trans issues, um, or, you know, things like COVID-19 and mask mandates and vaccine mandates, there's no room for nuance. There's no room for rational discourse. There's no room, uh, most of the time to, uh, analyze both sides of the issue. It's, uh, it's all seemingly, uh, cognitive bias, confirmation bias, and it's very extreme uh, the way this has manifested recently, in my opinion. Oh, it absolutely is. That, that, that is so true. You are not allowed even to ask to discuss these issues. It, it, you know, people take their positions categorically and permanently, inflexibly, and often violently. And it's interesting looking back over the way that uh, the mask uh, furor was covered uh, by the corporate media and indeed the alternative press throughout 2020. You know, I wrote a big essay on masking. Uh, it, I put it up on my own web- website, uh, New- News from Underground, in, in t- uh, September of last year. I, I noted how the media kept seizing on examples of what appeared to be violent behavior by anti-maskers in various uh, stores where they had mask rules. Um, They would always play those incidents up. When in fact, on the ground, you discovered, and by reading social media and just talking to people, you discovered that it was actually maskers who tended to have more violent reactions to anti-maskers because they felt more, you know, threatened by them and that the instances of violence by uh, people resisting mask regulations were very few. And at least one of them was extremely dubious. There was very little evidence to support it. The point is that it, it seemed to be, and this is typical of war propaganda. It seemed to be an exercise in projection, you know, that, that those who were actually embracing the more extreme and repressive uh, expedient, which is masking, uh, and who actually themselves had absolutely no tolerance or patience for people who weren't complying. They were, you know, engaged in variously projecting their malice and impulse to violence onto the other side. And that's that's going on even as we speak still, that kind of projectivity, you know. those who complain of vaccine apartheid, for example, I'm thinking here of Amy Goodman. Uh, I'm thinking here of Jewish Voice for Peace, right? 
uh, which is clamoring for more COVID vaccines for the Palestinians. Yeah, I think uh, Aaron Mate's in that category as well, and uh, uh, several others from uh, the Gray Zone crowd. And then I think even uh, Empire Files, a lot of people on the progressive left have taken this position. These are people whose, whose ignorance is really unforgivable. You know, the, the, the uh, COVID fatality rate among the Palestinians is a fraction of what it is among Israelis. Are they unaware of this or maybe they don't care? They probably didn't even bother to do the research. They just assume as ordered or as programmed that the, the vaccination is a good thing and uh, supporting it as a sign of virtue and caring about others. Well, it's not. You know, it's a means of depopulation. It should be obvious to the meanest intelligence just from studying the numbers from VAERS in this country, right? Uh, well, well over 12,000 deaths. Maybe by now it's 15,000. I don't know. These are reported deaths. Uh, the number is higher in Europe. The numbers of those badly neurologically impaired is vastly higher. So we're really talking about a global toll that's in the millions coming from a project whose explicit authors like Bill Gates are outspoken eugenicists and have you know, as Gates did in 2010, promised that there will be a day when we could reduce the population of the world by 10 to 15 percent, the figure he gave, with vaccines as a key element in that struggle. Okay, 10 to 15 percent of the world's population means millions of people. And Gates didn't just mean 10 to 15 percent. He meant a much higher figure because he has spoken in the past of what he called the golden billion. That's the ideal uh, world population for him. Try to find it online now. It's been scrubbed completely. The fact is we've got Aaron Maté and Amy Goodman and Jewish Voice for Peace demanding more of these experimental gene editing uh, therapeutic uh, so-called vaccines to be injected into the Palestinian people. Don't they have enough problems, the Palestinians? I mean, I happen to know some people in Gaza. Now I'm helping them to get by. And so I talked to them about all this. They are very lucky not to be vaccinated. And the Israelis are now extremely unlucky to be vaccinated. It's as if Dr. Mengele has taken over that country. And we have people here demanding that they get more shots. This, yeah. this takes my breath away. One more thing. Uh, Amy, another former friend of mine, had uh, an Indian journalist named Barka Dutt. She writes for the uh, some, you know, uh, she writes for the Washington Post. She's on CNN often, and she writes for a, a, an Indian newspaper, I mean, a major paper. So we're talking here about the corporate media, which means we're talking here about big pharma. So she comes on Amy's show, and she's this Indian woman. So we're supposed to genuflect before her because she is a woman of color, right? And she is extremely bitter about the fact, she finds it astounding that so many people here in this country are refusing their vaccination when there are such serious shortages in underprivileged countries. She calls this a very first world privileged kind of thing, right? Okay, this is staggering, you know, that anyone would say a thing like that and say it on a show called Democracy Now! and that anybody who is the star of a show called Democracy Now! would have on a guest shaming people for refusing to accept uh, so-called vaccinations that that can very likely kill you 
sooner or later and that have clearly severely disabled a whole, you know, millions of people around the world. We're selfish. It's a first world privilege kind of thing, a white thing to refuse the vaccination. I know a lot of black activists and just regular black people who won't get jabbed in a million years. The rate of so-called vaccine hesitancy among black people is, thank God, very high because they remember their grotesque history of, of abuse, mistreatment and exploitation by the American medical establishment. You know, if anybody mm-hmm. doesn't know about it, it's not just Tuskegee. People keep saying Tuskegee, Tuskegee. Tuskegee was the least of it. You know, read uh, Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. Understand that for black people, that history is in their very DNA in the way that the Holocaust is in the DNA of Jews. You know, and here we have this huge propaganda campaign targeting black people to try to talk them out of it. Their vaccine hesitancy is exactly like their tendency to conspiracy theory in that they're both perfectly healthy and sane. So you have somebody from India. In the response to history (laughs) as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. History, right? Not just virtue signaling. You know, I, I saw a really exhilarating video. I shared it of some people in some village in India. I, I don't know which village. They were all chasing these health personnel out of their village. These people had shown up in a little bus to give everybody shots, right? And the people picked up their sticks and stones and drove these uh, hirelings out of there. And they, they hightailed it out of there. That was really exhilarating. It was like watching footage of, of the cops, you know, taking to their heels and running away in various places in Europe, and the more, even more exhilarating footage of cops joining demonstrations, because ultimately the cops are on our side in this, you know. Unless if I could just interject um, about the vaccine apartheid argument, what you just touched on, I think is a really key point, because it's not just um, wh- what you brought up um, that, that, you know, helps to sort of debunk that that talking point, but also the fact that like in the case of Palestine, for example, in the places where there are vaccines available, the Palestinians there just aren't taking them because they don't want to, right? Um, and, and in the case of um, many African countries, for example, that have been uh, have very low COVID vaccination rates, it's because the people are choosing not to take it. Um, so essentially, what you're having the argument um, of of people like you know Democracy Now and and, and groups um, like that are saying, well, we know what's best for them. Um, right. which is a very, um, I guess, colonialist almost uh, viewpoint uh, that's being adopted because they're so convinced um, of the good of these vaccines and that it's charitable. But, it, you know, you're not only dealing with something that has these uh, underreported side effects and, and is experimental and all of this, but it's fundamentally something people in these areas, when they have access to it, are choosing not to take. Right. So it, does that mean they they favor not only exporting more vaccines to these countries, but then mandating it for these people and that they think they know best for them? I think that is um, uh, quite a big hole in that particular um, argument, because a lot of the people advancing that argument claim to be against that colonialist uh, mindset or however you want to uh, describe it. That's that's really an excellent point. You know, I hadn't thought about it in quite that way. But since they are wholeheartedly supportive of vaccine mandates here. And since they see it as a kind of crime against humanity to deprive these third world populations of the vaccines, 
you know, mm-hmm. by not recognizing the important fact that those people are refusing to be vaccinated. They're basically also tacitly calling for vaccine mandates all over Africa, you know, all over the occupied territories. They don't don't know what's best for them. I mean, that's sort of like, you know, if they're not going to take it and it's there when this issue of distribution and equality from their perspective, if that gets resolved, you know, where does that talking point go? That seems like it's logical conclusion to me. Exactly. Well, so they should be pretty happy then that, you know, John Magafuli and other African heads of state uh, conveniently died because they were resisting our benevolent uh, mission of injecting everybody in those countries. They must be happy. I think it's five African leaders that opposed uh, widespread COVID vaccination in their respective countries or at least wanted more studies to be done uh, before uh, implementing a a wide-scale vaccination program have died in the past year and a half. Normally, that would raise a lot of suspicion, (laughs) you would think. If if we had a press, you know, that functioned in the interests of its readers, they would be looking into that, but they have to dismiss it as conspiracy theory. Let me add something that not many people know. Uh, Magafuli president of, of uh, Tanzania, uh, I think he's a doc, was a doctor, and a very intelligent guy, and he was the one who spoke out about how they had tested, uh, you know, a papaya and a goat yeah. mm-hmm. and all these other things for COVID, and they found COVID in all of them. He nailed the fraudulence of the PCR tests, uh, which have been catastrophically misused throughout this whole crisis just as they were during the HIV AIDS uh, uh, crisis, you know. Magafuli died, and our press reported it as a COVID death. Magafuli did not die of COVID. He had a heart attack. After being missing for about two weeks from the public view, he had a sudden heart attack at the end of his uh, two or three week absence, yeah. He was very likely heart attacked, okay? And then the press uh, obligingly misreported his death as a COVID death, which served as pro-vaccine propaganda while also enabling the most nauseating kind of gloating, which we notice, you know, uh, oh, look at him. He was anti-vax and now he died of COVID. Ha ha. You know, this, this... I'm going to try to get a grip on my emotions here and say that this whole experience has really made very clear to me that um, it is always possible to drag much of humanity back to the most primitive emotional state. It's always possible to get to the inner witch burner in your average educated, privileged person. Yeah, that's unfortunately really true. And I think um, in this particular case in Tanzania, a, a lot of people also on Twitter too, um, you know, were, were sort of gloating in a way about, um, you know, his, his death and things like that because of his COVID policies specifically, whereas a lot of his other policies, like his decision to kick out GMO uh, agricultural trials um, out of the country to kick out um 
uh, predatory uh, foreign mining interests in nationalized mines, um, things like that. <laughs> Obviously, didn't win him any favors with the Western, you know, ruling class would have normally been championed. But not not only that, um, but Tanzania's population, and this was even admitted in mainstream media reports that were critical of his COVID approach, uh, admitted that the Tanzanian people were overwhelmingly supported the decisions he took, not just with respect to the vaccine, but the lack of lockdowns and things like that, the way he, um, you know, sort of uh, helped to expose uh, the misuse of, of PCR um, in this uh, over the past year and a half and things like that. You know, he was supported by his population. It's not like he was just a a, a tyrant who um, made this stuff up against the will of the people, but it's been increasingly framed that way. And it's like the um, majority opinion in these in these uh, countries uh, just don't matter, apparently. <laughs> well, that's, that's that's exactly right. I mean, that, that 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 is kind of an elaboration on your prior point. Well, just another they, example, I guess. Yeah. 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 They the, the so-called progressive left and the liberal media, whatever you want to call that monolith. They have to close their eyes to the reality of popular opinion when it contradicts their uh, ideology, right? They can't be bothered to look at what the people in those countries want because these are indeed uh, people hypnotized by a kind of neo-colonial uh, presumption or pretense. I mean, Bill Gates, let's talk about him for a minute. Bill Gates cleverly followed the playbook of John D. Rockefeller, who was also uh, sued by the government for violating, um, you know, the antitrust laws, and who then, uh, and who was, you know, widely hated for other reasons, you know, because uh, he was accurately portrayed, he and his activities accurately reported in by the so-called muckrakers, uh, which was actually, you know, the press functioning as a free press should. So what did he do? Well, uh, he formed the Rockefeller Foundation, which immediately gave him the patina of a benefactor, of a philanthropist. And he, he is, uh, you know, the PR genius working for him, Ivy Lee, uh, crafted this public image of, of Rockefeller as this benevolent old gent, literally handing out dimes to little girls. I mean, it seems laughable today, but it was extremely effective. Uh, so flash forward to, uh, you know, the late 90s, 2000, Bill Gates sued for violating antitrust laws. He was not forced really to break anything up. We don't even know the terms of that settlement. It should be made public, but we don't know what they are. Nevertheless, he was also rightly distrusted and loathed as uh, a predatory figure engaging in, you know, patently unfair practices, stealing people's property and so on to create Microsoft creates the, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation has his father, the old eugenicist Bill senior serve as its director and immediately starts uh, issuing this, you know, stream of neo-colonialist imagery he and Melinda, you know, traipsing into darkest Africa to help the natives uh, by ad administering these vaccines. There's all these shots of him gleefully giving oral vaccines to black babies, the grateful mothers holding the babies up to this 
towering white figure. He looks like a lizard, you know. I mean, he might as well have a pith helmet on, you know, and have a train of uh, of native servants, each carrying a big bundle. Yeah, I mean, it. the thing with Bill Gates is, is so crazy because before, you know, in addition to his quote-unquote vaccine philanthropy, you know, he was just a major evangelist for Monsanto. And a lot of people that are able to recognize that the GM crops, you know, led, for example, to a huge spike in farmer suicides in India, for example, trapping them in a debt cycle, taking their land away from them, allowing agrochemical corporations to come in and big food uh, to come and sweep in and, and take up their land and destroy their livelihood. Um, you know, e- even in the case of uh, if that wasn't enough, you know, people can see that. But even with vaccines, you know, he's admitted that it's all about return on investment for him, uh, aside from the eugenicist angle, right? He's admitted yeah. it's about return on investment for him. And that's why Gavi, his vaccine alliance that he funds, says explicitly on its website that it's about securing the health of vaccine markets, vaccine markets, not public health. It's about vaccine markets. And it's about, and he, he's given numerous speeches about how it's return on investment. And it's just amazing to me to see people who in other scenarios will, will rail against uh, capitalism and corporatism and that type of behavior in other realms uh, find it perfectly fine and philanthropic and uh, wonderful that he's doing it in this particular case. It's so uh, stunning. It is. It is absolutely stunning. He, he uh, I think Bobby Kennedy has pointed out that every single one of his ventures and investments has had deleterious effects on people's health. You know, he, he <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's not a single thing that he's invested in that that's actually helpful or benign. You know, there are things you can do in these, in these uh, villages that will really improve people's health. It does not involve vaccines and it hasn't been vaccines that, that conquered many, many most communicable diseases over the last two centuries. That's, that's a, that's a myth. That's propaganda. It's not the case. It's providing clean water and, and proper sanitation systems and improving people's diet. That's what makes them healthy. Not vaccines, not filling them up with these toxins, you know. Uh, but yeah, where is the left on all this? And I'm going to make an observation that just struck me yesterday, actually. I was sort of staggered to see that Bob Avakian uh, has just written a piece that is zealously and contemptuously pro-vaccine with no, it's absolutely devoid of scientific evidence. It's devoid of statistical evidence. It's just a kind of rant in favor of vaccination, mandatory vaccination. This is coming from this, you know, revolutionary Marxist-Leninist. You put that together with the fact that contrary to what a lot of people I know think, China and the U.S. are not really enemies. I do think that there are flare-ups of confrontation, like in the South China Sea. I think that kind of thing is, is you know, necessary for the maintenance of military budgets. And I also think that there are people in the military who, uh, and in, in neoconservative circles who, who would like some kind of a war with China. Nevertheless, when you get right down to it, the distinction between the West and China is as misleading as the distinction between left and right. Absolutely agree. I'm actually doing a video about this with uh, James Corbett in the next couple of weeks because the ex- a lot of the same predatory 
interests, like a great example, the best example probably maybe is Blackstone Capital, Steve Schwartzman, uh, just as involved, <laughs> uh, his business interests are arguably more entrenched in China than they are in the US. And that's not exactly someone I would uh, frame as communist, right? And he's fully allowed to operate there with the full uh, blessing of, of China's government, right? And there's a lot of uh, individuals uh, from the West in, in that sort of billionaire ruling elite class that are like that. That's exactly. Let's let's face it. All right. This is why I brought this up. Baba Vakian just instinctively, I think it was instinctive, you know, maybe he's getting paid, who knows, but he just leaps to the ferocious defense of mandatory vaccination with, with these toxic serums, you know. Uh, well, that's not that surprising in a way, because um, a certain kind of uh, left totalitarian, well, left totalitarianism is not really at odds with the kind of predatory capitalism we're talking about. There's really no tension there. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people uh, who, you know, leap to the defense of China are the same ones who continue to take a rosy view of the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks. By now, I've read enough books on this to be completely persuaded that um, the Bolshevik Revolution was funded and abetted by the city of London and by Wall Street for several reasons. You know, it had partly to do with uh, the war against Germany. So there was that momentary geopolitical motivation. But also, I think that these uh, robber barons really kind of liked the model uh, of utter top-down control of the economy that the Bolsheviks were uh, promising to realize you know andrew carnegie called himself a socialist and this is in black and white and he meant nothing benign by that he meant that it, it's a system that eliminates all competition they like that i think that there was a kind of a natural ideological affinity between those titanic figures and the bolsheviks and of course you know they could continue to uh, make money off uh, the soviet union as they did they supplied, you know, all their ball bearing equipment and, you know, factory parts, which Russia didn't have and couldn't make itself. So they continued to make money. And that, that's been painstakingly uh, documented by Anthony Sutton, you know. And uh, they could also make sure that Russia could never, you know, sort of hobbled by a command economy. It could never evolve to the point where it would actually pose any kind of commercial threat to the United States or to the West, you see. They, they could never develop enough to become a rival in commerce as Germany was becoming by the time uh, the elites engineered World War One. So China is not at odds with the globalist elite. Yeah, uh, not China, at all. <laughs> China has been a full partner in the orchestration of the COVID crisis from the beginning. From the beginning, let me, you know, step back to note that G and Gates are very tight. They have a very close relationship that accounts for the very close relationship between the CCP and the World Health Organization. And that helps explain the simultaneous uh, rollout of those preposterous images of people dropping dead in the streets from COVID, you know, video from China patently fake 
it appeared throughout China and it's, it appeared at the same time in the British press from the UK. It blew back into the rest of the West and people in the United States saw these frightening images of people dropping dead in the streets from COVID. It all came from China and it was clearly, um, you know, timed to be simultaneous in that way. Right. Well, a lot more than that just came from China, right? The, the sequence of what is being, you know, the PCR test is based on and, and uh, that the spike protein that's, you know, being coded for in the mRNA vaccines and stuff, all of these sequences orig- originated at this particular lab in China that doesn't just have ties to China's government, right? It also has ties to um, groups like Equal Health Alliance, which is most of its funding, as Sam Husseini's reported uh, in recent years, has come from the Pentagon, and they have close ties to USAID, which has a, a lot of longstanding ties to the CIA. And there's yeah. like obviously a lot of different interests there. Um, what's interesting, since we've been talking a lot about the left, is that in this case, the right um, has sort of uh, made a Russiagate equivalent with China in the COVID era um, of its own accord, where it's the CCP that's orchestrating and is behind everything and tends to selectively ignore a lot of these um, more nuanced connections that show exactly what you're pointing out. Uh, that China is not at all at odds with this agenda, but neither really is the power structure in in the U.S. or in the West uh, or in numerous other parts of the world. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, the most the most illuminating book to read, you know, if one wants to actually read a novel again, is 1984. You know, it's a book of such profound uh, insight. Uh, I, I can't recommend it strongly enough. But that you know that that is a satiric vision of a world divided into three superpowers, uh, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia, and they're all permanently at war with each other. But none of them intends to win the war. This is a way to keep their respective populations in line. There is constant warfare uh, at the borders. Uh, You know, it's a way to keep, uh, you know, part of the population busy and killed them off in those wars and to have air raids and all the rest of it. It's all theater, right? So I couldn't agree more about the right. I mean, I really do very much appreciate what Tucker Carlson has to say. He'll, he, he alone will talk about certain things that the rest of the press ignores or misreports. The same with Laura Ingram, you know, both of whom I, I, I used to loathe, but I, I, I have to say I, I like a lot of the work they do, but their stuff, like the best stuff on the right, is all uh, kind of tilted. It's all askew because they continue hammering the left, what they call the left. They think that uh, critical race theory and uh, you know the cult of Black Lives Matter generally have taken over corporations and government agencies because, like, what campus leftists. Have somehow influenced those. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the old anti-communist reflex. They can't get over that. So they have to keep screaming about the CCP. Uh, Yeah, it's a much more nuanced connection between the Wuhan lab and Fort Dietrich. You know, I have friends who, you know, keep calling it Fort Dietrich uh, uh, vaccine, which is just as brainless as people calling it the Chinese virus. But they, they have to take sides, you know, have to take one side or the other in this war. But let's just step back and note that. Yeah, it's like a nationalist kind of response, I, I feel like, sort of like a, a born out of the Cold War, you know, um, that it yeah. has, that like it can't 
possibly be the United States, the like the real United States government. It's like outside forces conspiring against freedom in the U.S. and stuff instead of. Uh... Well, well, again, it's, and it's tribalistic. It's mm-hmm. basically tribal, you know. So that, but both the right and this kind of sinophile so-called left are 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 just missing missing the point. China not only kickstarted the fear propaganda with those ridiculous images, people keeling over in the streets, but they're the ones who provided the model of the draconian lockdown. I mean, it comes from China. They were the first to do it, and the WHO hailed them for this. They hailed their uh, tough approach. It was China also that, um, at least ostensibly, uh, set the tone for masking. You know, you'll remember that that Fauci and the well before COVID, though. Um, you know, they've been doing that uh, mask mandate stuff. Uh, I think if it wasn't during the SARS epidemic in the early two thousands, it might have even been before, but definitely since then, uh, they've had no problem getting their population used to, you know, widespread masking. Well, the uh, the Asian countries generally, the peoples there, have tended to mask up. And it's true that in in Wuhan, this is something that nobody ever talked about, of course, during the crisis. But Wuhan had a had and probably still has a really serious air pollution problem. Uh, right. That was something mm-hmm. that people called the Wuhan pneumonia, and so the people in Wuhan were masking spontaneously because the air was so foul. But there wasn't really a mask mandate. Uh, just a, there is not one now, and 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 early in the crisis there wasn't one. And you'll remember that the CDC and Dr. Fauci were both very forthright in not advising people to wear masks. This is until early April. I mean, Fauci was even on 60 Minutes saying the mask can do no good; it may make you feel better. This was all based on the so-called science. This was true. They were right then in the World Health Organization until early June, was explicitly telling people, don't bother wearing a mask. But it was, see, in around early April that Dr. George Gao, who's the head of the Chinese equivalent of the CDC, suddenly came out and said, you've got to wear a mask. Masks are crucial. Then Fauci pivoted, CDC pivoted. And then a few months later, the World Health Organization pivoted. So it's as if China uh, sort of gave the signal uh, that masking was a necessary part of a tough lockdown approach. And let me just conclude by noting that the ventilator protocol that's, you know, killed nine out of 10 of the elderly people intubated, that protocol was formulated by, by China and then held up again, held up as a model for the whole world to follow, uh, held up by the World Health Organization. So that China has, has given all the worst signals throughout this whole thing. And continues, of course, through its sort of social credit system to be to represent the ideal that the globalists are striving for. Well, um, I think this has been a really great uh, conversation on, on these particular points. And uh, I'm, I'm sad to cut it short, but I'm running a little short on time. But there are some things I wanted to ask you, particularly about your own personal experience. Um, over the past year and a half. So I know that you are uh, recently in the midst of a libel lawsuit that you've been uh, fighting uh, to keep your job at NYU, despite having tenure. Um, and all, a lot of this, you know, coming out of your your views on the COVID situation, you've been smeared um, in at least uh, one article I'm aware of, I think in the Chronicle of Higher Education, it was published 
Um, so can you describe the censorship, retaliation, and, and, and other things uh, that you've been subjected to over the past year and a half and the larger problem you think it speaks to? Yeah, well, my, my own story is, is apropos, uh, as your listeners will immediately see, because it's no secret to anybody that we're contending with a, with a constant tidal wave of censorship at every level, which is really posed an existential threat to uh, us all because free speech is really on the crosshairs and with it academic freedom. My own story is a poignant illustration of this. Last uh, September, it was almost a year ago, uh, in my propaganda course, which I had taught almost every semester for roughly 20 years, I introduced the class by uh, explaining what propaganda is and how particularly difficult it is to spot it as propaganda when you agree with it. You know, it's easy to spot it when you don't agree with it. So that our, the challenge for the class it would be for us to try to face it in real time, identify it, analyze it, and then, you know, respond to it appropriately. And, and all I'm doing is teaching the students to do their own research and make up their own minds. I mean, I never preach or propagandize in class. I gave as an example of the kind of thing we might talk about, the mask mandates, and told them that if we were to study it in class or if any of them is to write a paper on it, um, as a couple of them ended up doing, they should read all the scientific literature on masking. I started by noting that all the randomized controlled trials masking conducted in healthcare settings over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so had found that masks do not prevent transmission of respiratory viruses. I say you should read those. And as well, you should read all the more recent studies that claim to find otherwise. And I advised them, you know, in those cases to look to see what other scientists posted in response to those recent essays, and uh, crucially, to take note of what school those studies were conducted at and see if they have any financial ties to Big Pharma or the Gates Foundation, you know, to make sure that there's not some context that would impose bias on the researchers. All right, I said all this. Following week, a student who joined the class late and did not hear the opening lecture uh, bristled, not in class, she kind of hid her bristling, <laughs> but she was infuriated when the subject came up again. And for about 20 minutes, another student and I discussed the issue. And uh, she was so angry that she went and she called the bias hotline at NYU. And they told her, I guess, rightly that there was nothing they could do about it. There was no bias involved. So she flipped out possibly at the urging of one of my colleagues, uh, this I don't know yet, went on Twitter and just unleashed this furious stream of tweets demanding that I be fired by NYU, uh, including screenshots from my website, News from Underground, uh, presenting these things as self-evidently false. You know, one of them was a chart of, of the funding of left media. It was from 2013 but it shows who funds democracy now in the nation and so on. It was all completely accurate. But this, she said, was typical of me because I'm, uh, I use right wing and conspiracy sources. 
So this is a student who actually should have stayed in the class and expressed her her fury in the class so we could discuss it because I welcome disagreement. But instead, she just went and demanded that I be canceled. Okay, I'll try to make this brief. That in itself was annoying and unprecedented for me, but not the problem. The problem was that my department chair instantly tweeted his thanks to her and in the name of the department said, he said, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. Uh, well, this being my termination. I'm tenured. I've been there since 1997. All right. That happened. The next day, this doctor who was like NYU's COVID czar and the dean of my school emailed my other students without putting me on copy, hinted that I'd given them dangerous misinformation, included a list of links to CDC-approved studies of masking, telling them that those were the things to believe, something I would never do, and then ending by you know warning them to wear their masks on campus, which I never told them not to do. And then finally, my chair asked me, and I had to, I had to do it. He asked me not to teach the propaganda course next semester. Next semester would have been this last spring. Yeah. I asked him why he gave some reason having to do with enrollments, but he was clearly told to tell me not to teach the course anymore. So under protest, I. That's insanely telling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, well, the most telling thing is this. Um, I'm going to get to the climax and the explanation for my libel lawsuit. Uh, I was so, you know, indignant what they'd done that I decided with the help of some friends like Mickey Huff at Project Censor Mm -hmm. to draft draft a petition for change.org, just basically demanding that NYU respect my academic freedom, uh, but doing it in the name of all of us everyone, you know, journalists, professors, doctors, scientists, activists, whistleblowers, everyone who'd been gagged or persecuted for their dissonance, and not just since COVID, but like forever, right? So it was, I was basically saying, you know, this is not just my problem. We're facing a a very, very daunting and dangerous wave of censorship, even on campuses, and why you should respect my academic freedom, and thereby, you know, set a good example for other schools. So this went up, Tens of thousands of people signed it. I'm still welcoming people to sign it. A lot of eminent people signed it. Well, this apparently enraged my colleagues, most of them, my department colleagues, because 25 of them signed a letter to the dean of my school. Now, but let me say, uh, all the documents I'm referring to are up on my website. They are fascinating. It's markcrispinmiller.com. There's a link right at the top. You can read all this. They wrote a letter to the dean arguing that while they believe in academic freedom, you know, which is a disclaimer that I've learned, you know, to distrust as soon as I hear it, while they believe in academic freedom, when a colleague's behavior is sufficiently egregious, it nullifies their academic freedom. They're referring to the faculty handbook. And what they're basically saying in the letter is that I should be fired. Why? Because I discouraged my class from wearing masks, which I never did. I intimidated students who were wearing masks, which I couldn't have done since it was on Zoom. Nobody was wearing a mask. But that was, that was the, that was the least of it, Whitney. They went on to accuse me of hate speech, of attacks on students and others in our community, 
maintaining an unsafe learning environment, uh, assailing them with non-evidence-based arguments, that's code for conspiracy theories, and uh, microaggressions and aggressions, okay? This was jaw-dropping. I, I was stunned by this. You yeah, know, I, I can't blame you. Great pride in my teaching. So, all right, I, how did I hear about this letter? The dean sent it to me with an email telling me he had ordered this review. All right, here's the most telling thing. I sought a conversation with him. We had an exchange on Zoom. He seemed quite out of it, frankly. He told me that he ordered the review because the university's lawyers told him he had to. All right, that seems to me to be the key to this whole thing. Uh, all right, make a long story short. I asked them to retract the letter. I went through it with a rebuttal point by point. They ignored my requests. No reply, no reply. So I decided I have to sue them for libel. So I am suing 19 of the 25 for libel. I'm not suing the untenured people, the junior people. They don't really know what's going on. I'm suing the 19 who know better. And uh, they filed a motion to dismiss. And this was around late January, early February. Since then, we've all been waiting for the judge to rule on the motion to dismiss, which is more stunning. Uh, I mean, it's I think it's self-incriminating. But um, it contains even even more slurs. They accuse me of hurling racial slurs at, um, you know, ethnically diverse students or some nonsense like this. Anyway, most of their exhibits to prove that they weren't lying about me are their own emails to each other and some stuff on my website, which hurt their feelings, you know. Anyway, this is the point. What happened to me that letter represents what I call the censorship trifecta. This is why my case is so interesting. There are three ways in which we are now silenced, right, or punished for heterodoxy. The first, of course, is conspiracy theory. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you're dangerous. And as we know now, according to the DHS, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're a domestic terrorist, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So that was accused of that you know, on non-evidence-based arguments. You're accused of hate speech, okay? That's the social justice playbook. So if you bring up anything like the risks in uh, transgender medicine, you know, whether or not it's appropriate to use radical medical means to intervene in a child's sexual development, that's a perfectly legitimate question that some doctors try to raise. They accuse you of hate speech. You're silenced, okay? So they accuse me of hate speech. And thirdly, of course, COVID. If you are in opposition to COVID measures, and that phrase, opposition to COVID measures, is right from the DHS's bulletin, you are a domestic terrorist. You are putting people at risk. So I was hit with all three, okay? So I'm kind of like the poster child of COVID-era censorship. And um, I will say very briefly that there is a GoFundMe page because I expect however the judge rules to continue this fight. If he grants the motion to dismiss, which will be surprising because their case is so weak, we will appeal. If he denies the motion to dismiss, we will proceed and through discovery, uh, try to find the threads connecting these 19 colleagues to the administration. Uh, We've raised over $100,000. That's extremely gratifying. I want to raise more. 
The money goes directly into an escrow account that my lawyer manages. So I'm not going to profit from it. But I want to say this, and this, this opens the discussion out and we can conclude with this unless you have another question. At first, I thought that I was subjected to all this because NYU is now the most vaccine implicated university in the country. I was told this by Mary Holland, president of Children's Health Defense, who was in the law school at NYU and squeezed out by vaccine slash big pharma interests. It used to be Penn, the University of Pennsylvania. It's now NYU. And I thought my modest visibility, you know, online, my status as a public intellectual uh, is problematic for them because I am questioning all the COVID rules and regulations and most certainly questioning uh, the vaccine mandates, speaking out against them every chance I get. And I thought it was all about that. But I did a podcast with Catherine Austin Fitz, and she said something interesting. She said that in preparation for our conversation, she had looked at the board of trustees at NYU and was floored to see that the board includes many of the people driving what she calls the financial reset that's in the works right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, Schwartzman is on the board of trustees. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. so, uh, she said, you know, you, you're, you're, you have a bullseye on your back, you know. I mean, you are in the belly of the beast, she said. So I think it probably is about more than just the vaccines and the masks. And, and NYU is draconian in enforcing all this. They have a vaccine mandate that even includes people teaching online, as I now am. Uh, you know, I had to get a religious exemption, which I got in all sincerity, just to be able to teach remotely. This is not about health. Is, is it not obvious? This is nothing to do with health. This is about control. This is about compliance. This is about preventing congregation of any kind. This is about the great reset. This is about the financial reset. This is about the new world order, right? So, uh, here we are now, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Google, uh, they're all part of it, you know. They're all, you know, really rigorously policing our speech, our thought. Uh, it is becoming increasingly difficult even to have conversations like this one. The threat of some kind of, you know, police crackdown is, is always looming. The police have responded with ever more naked violence against people simply protesting or even just being out on the street walking around. This is not in uh, China now. This is in, you know, ostensibly free countries, as I don't have to tell you. So, uh, again, you know, there's no excuse whatsoever for uh, either being on no side or being on the other side, right? No excuse. This is it. Anyone who continues not to stand up against this will be at the bar of history one day, just as the Germans were. And if they have children who are fortunate enough to survive this so-called vaccine cult, those children might well ask, you know, children might be lamed by the vaccine or blinded, somehow impaired. They ask their parents, why did you have me injected? You know, what are they going to say, right? 
it's it's so strictly analogous to Nazi Germany. It it it, it is really kind of breathtaking. Well, I think that's a useful exercise um, in um, in in deciding what steps people like you and me and others people who are listening um, will will take you know from this point forward or have taken up to this point. You know, I'm uh, the the mother of a three year old. I uh, want to take actions that I feel like you know decades down the line. She asked me if she asked me you know what did you do during this time? I can tell her that I. I did. <laughs> I tried to do something, right? Um, so I, I think the people that are trying to continue to fence it uh, because it's comfortable for them or it's safe. Uh, a lot of the people, uh, sort of that were mentioned earlier, in terms of trying to act like it's still 2019, despite how much the yeah. game has changed, um, and things like that. You know, those questions are not going to be very fun to answer um, <laughs> for a lot of people um, because no. just like you know during World War II and stuff, people that were collaborators um, or, you know, direct participants in a lot of those um, atrocities, you know, they had to justify their participation somehow to their uh, children. And ultimately it it, it comes down to either like, uh, you know, essentially to uh, having to admit cowardice to your child and stuff like that. Um, I certainly don't, uh, whether it's being remembered by my um my own child or by by someone else or just by history or, or whatever, I certainly don't want that to be my legacy. And I would really hope um, and I would really implore other people that are in this particular line of work, um, whether in journalism, academia, or also in the field of medicine, these professional uh, classes that you were mentioning earlier. I mean, this, <laughs> uh, th- this is a, a time for legacy, you know, defining if you want to make this about ego or something, you know, that's, I guess, one way to look at it. But it's even more than that. Um, for people that don't, in the sense that, you know, everything uh, <laughs> you have ever fought to protect uh, in your life up until this point, or people before you have fought to protect all of that um, is currently on the line in a big way. And this oh, is really the point where um, something has to be done. Uh, you could argue that 9-11, um, you know, a lot of people avoided that as well. And now we're 20 years on, and this is where we are, because people chose not uh, to ask the questions because they didn't want to be ridiculed or delegitimized uh, for questioning the official narrative. And this, is, I would argue, is a is a major consequence of failing to do that by a lot of people. Yeah, I, I would even go further back. and, and Well, sure, you can. <laughs> no, one, one always can. But again, you know, um, the Kennedy assassination, the interest to carry that out had a world like this present world in mind, you know, um, it all starts there. Now, I'm not expecting everybody at this parlous moment to start studying up on something so complicated and historically remote as that. But the fact is that the, our, our chickens have come home to roost in the sense that yeah. once you have become accustomed to rolling your eyes at anyone who questions what all the press has been telling you, uh, once you've become accustomed to that kind of defensive posture, you have, you know, you've, you've basically plucked out one of your eyes and are threatening the vision in the other, you know, because the things that we are reading everywhere in the media, the things we're taught throughout school um, are often complete lies, completely false. Uh, it is stunning how false, how mendacious the media is now. It, it is awesome to go through the New York Times, and I don't mean that in a positive sense. 
to just page through it. I can't even do it any longer. It is, it is, it is a breathtaking exercise because it's just like Goebbels' press. It's just page after page of, of lies, 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 you know? And you have to learn how to spot those lies and, and analyze them and, and above all, you know, keep your head in the midst of everything, not give in to fear. And I say this, I'm afraid in a kind of anticipatory way, as I think that as the COVID narrative continues to crumble, there is the ever greater likelihood of some, you know, next thing that will seem to come out of nowhere, some terrifying thing or some impoverishing or incapacitating thing, a cyber attack or an extreme weather event or, you know, who knows, even an alien attack, you know, they were suddenly talking. Well, they've about, set it all up to, to choose up. any one of those three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so whichever of it is, or if it's all at once, or if, you know, some guy with a MAGA hat takes a shot at Biden, you know, and it's all, it's all set up to demonize people precisely like us. The point is that anybody listening, you know, whether they're active conspiracy theorists or they just follow this stuff with interest and an open mind, it's crucial to keep your head, even in the midst of panic, try not to give in completely. Try somewhere in part of your mind to preserve the idea that um, this could be bogus, just like all the rest. And then an equally difficult task you have to try not to give in to anger. People are becoming increasingly unhinged in their hostility to the unvaccinated, to those who are in opposition to COVID measures. There's a kind of virulence to the discourse. This is from people, often from people I've known. You know, this is in outlets like Vanity Fair, which referred to, you know, uh, so-called anti-vaxxers as assholes. This is Vanity Fair, you know. People screaming for our heads that we'd be impoverished, that we'd be driven out, that we'd be put in detention camps, which, as we know, are in the works or are completed. That's really frightening. Uh, people have become unrecognizably barbarous. We can't, we can't respond in that spirit. You know, all that leads to is a screaming match and it just makes everybody feel worse. And we can't even waste time trying to argue with them. You know, those whose minds are really sealed tight shut, uh, you can't argue with them. It's not worth the effort. You know, you, 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 you reserve your persuasive powers and, you know, marshal your evidence with people whose minds are open, who are on the fence, who have rethought things, who have second thoughts, or who are instinctively opposed, but don't have that evidence. You can give it to them. It's essential talk to young people because young people are always more receptive you know to counter narratives they're not really daunted by the conspiracy theory meme you know uh, and there's something else I want to ask your your listeners to do there's something I've completed that I think is potentially extremely effective it's called don't black lives matter if those vaccines take them okay? In other words, is it only when white cops kill black people that we go out into the streets? What about all the black people who've actually died since their so-called vaccinations? African-Americans have been particularly targeted with vaccine propaganda because of that vaccine hesitancy we discussed earlier. 
that's a real problem in the eyes of the, uh, you know, cabal that mm-hmm. that's running all this thing. So what I've done is to go through uh, all the instances we know of, of black people uh, getting vaccinated and then dying, one of them two or three hours after vaccination, one dying the next day, and then others dying uh, at longer intervals. And then the startlingly high number of people who died untimely sudden deaths with no cause of death given, right? I think this is all the result of a lethal propaganda drive that, that, that will one day constitute, will be recognized as a crime against humanity. All the media have participated in this are going to be in one way or another, uh, susceptible to indictment, you know, for participation in a manifest crime against humanity. This piece that I'm urging people to read and share, which has pictures, when you put names and faces to the dead, you know, you acknowledge the high likelihood that their death was caused by their vaccinations, so-called, and you put faces and names to those victims. It's very, very different from simply throwing numbers around as we're tempted to do, as I've done. I always do. You throw the Veers figures around, you know, that's not enough. Stalin understood, you know, one, one murder is, is a, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, right? Forget it. That's neutral, gray language. It's too abstract. These are actual people, you know? Uh, so this is only part one of a piece that will have some further parts, but, but I, I think it's crucial that we get it out there, not just to, as a way to recognize the toll the vaccines are taking, but to further encourage us to forge alliances across racial, geographic, ideological lines. I mean, I think that the people who are blue meanies, you know, the real diehard liberal slash progressives who have been permanently deranged by, you know, Trump derangement syndrome, there's no talking to them. I think the masking all day long has made them worse. Their injections have probably made them worse. Uh, forget them. Uh, the rest of us have got to form a kind of, you know, popular front that, that's for real this time and, uh, understand that the enemy is above us. You know, it's not at ground level. That fighting with each other is just, is just what, you know, uh, Dr. Mengele ordered, you know, <laughs> that we don't, we don't look above us to see who's doing this to us. We find other victims to take shots at. That's, that's going to get us nowhere. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think a lot of this um, organic movement that, that you sort of referred to is sort of coming together, though, perhaps rather slowly. But I think, you know, more and more people are realizing that they're going to, um, you know, uh, have a higher likelihood of, of getting through this uh, turbulent period that we're in and arguably an even more turbulent period um, that we're heading into by finding like-minded individuals and building local resilient communities. Because even in places that have totally rolled over for most COVID things like Chile, for example, that I um, have a lot of experience with, you know, there are people that maybe they don't protest or things like that, but they have known uh, even from the beginning, some of them that this is not exactly what it seems and are making plans, uh, you know, to uh, combat that, at least in their own personal lives. And, you know, it's happening uh, everywhere to some degree, but, you know, it it encourages, it it necessitates, um, 
that people stop really being passive um, in a lot of aspects of their lives in ways they were passive before and become more active. Um, and I think one uh, case here that's relevant to that conversation in that sense is that it's really important for people to go um, for people to go from being passive consumers of media to active consumers of media, you know, doing their own research, reaching their own conclusions about things instead of just, um, you know, letting people tell them what it is and believing their favorite pundits um, or commentators at face value without sort of digging deeper. Uh, a lot of people in my audience, of course, do that, but I think it's time to apply that same approach to other aspects um, of our lives because it's it's becoming um, essential as people uh, that tend to uh, have critical thinking about uh, current events uh, or choose not to comply with current mandates, um, whatever they are, you know, are essentially being a depersoned, I guess you could say, um, yes. in different parts around the world. So the way uh, <laughs> to get around that, especially with that virulence, um, towards people like that, um, that's, that's developing in various parts of the world. You know, it, it's, it's becoming increasingly, uh, urgent, uh, to start relying on people that, um, agree with you if you are in that category, um, in order to, you know, keep on keeping on essentially. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, people who haven't been familiar with my work should know that I have a listserv. I call it news from underground. You can join it by going to markcrispinmiller.com. I often share your stuff thereby. You know, I try to share as much stuff as I can, and I also Thank have you. my own <laughs> thing. Oh, absolutely. Well, you're one of the crucial uh, investigative um, journalists who's, you know, really looking in the right direction. Uh, I mean, I do actually wish that I, I had the means to do a proper newspaper that would have people like you, you know, submitting stuff on a regular basis, and you could be paid I would even have it, you know, in a paper edition coming out on weekends for distribution at, you know, churches and mosques and, and temples and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a, a publication called Samizdat in the Netherlands. I send it out every week. It's a weekly. I send out the online version, but they also do a paper version, uh, which gets passed from hand to hand. We're going to need increasingly to turn to that kind of old media, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we as we continue to build the kind of communities you're talking, I'm, we're going to have to remake the world all over again. We're going to have to recreate those institutions, those crucial cultural institutions that have rotted to the point where they are, uh, you know, irredeemable. I'm talking about higher education, talking about journalism, talking about the medical profession. Uh, they are utterly uh, uh, rotten. They are they are putrescent, you know, and there's no point in trying to redeem them. We need to create a new a kind of journalism from scratch. I would love to be able to found a small college somewhere, you know, with a faculty inclined to look beyond the mythology of propaganda, you know, uh, but also study the arts, right? Because uh, we can't just live on critique alone, God knows. But the point is, we need to be studying together, having in-class conversations. That's what we have to do. And we have to be forging alliances with people in other countries. It is a globalist conspiracy. We need an international response. We have to be flexible. We have to be mobile. You know, We often have to flee. I mean, it sounds melodramatic, but it's true. So uh, I believe that um, as dark as things are, I know you share my 
assumption and belief that we will prevail, as daunting as this is, I'm never pessimistic because I think that what they're trying to do is so grandiose. It's so insane, you know. They would be gods, these people. I mean, they would live forever and they would remake humankind to serve them. You know, they make the Tower of Babel look like nothing. But they can't, they can't do it because I believe that it's fundamentally evil. It's fundamentally anti-human, right? So it's, uh, I think the humanity, I, I agree with you. I think there's enough humanity left in people. Uh, that they at some point uh, will fight to defend humanity from being turned into um, servile automatons <laughs> um, yeah, right. and uh, just uh, eliminate what makes us human, essentially. And if you look at some of the, the luminaries of this group, like people like Yuval Noah Harari um, and among others, you know, they essentially talk about the elimination of humanity as a species essentially being in the works a couple years, uh, well, a couple centuries, he says, but... You know, others are uh, for a more short-term timeline uh, down the line. And, and talking about groups like the Rockefellers, that particular family has wanted um, to create essentially docile automatons uh, since the turn uh, of the 20th century. So, you know, this is something that I think once it becomes more obvious, it's becoming increasingly more obvious with time, um, it will eventually, I think, get to a point where it becomes so obvious that people will be like, wait, what? Even, you know, people that may have already gotten the vaccine and stuff like that. And that's why I encourage people too, to forge alliances with people who may maybe bought into some of the stuff up to this point. But, you know, once it gets to the third dose and the fourth dose and the fifth dose and so on might start to question, you know, we yeah. have to, you know, keep, keep the door open uh, to everyone really. Um, that's, yeah, mm -hmm. Because we, we, we are devoted to saving lives. I mean, it's us, we're doing it. The people who've been jabbed, have to know about the supplements uh, that they should be taking to try to leach some of that, uh, you know, graphene out of their blood vessels. There are things you can be taking now. There's also at least one pharmaceutical that's in the works to help reverse the effects of these injections. People have to know about this, just as at least I, for one, and many others have been, you know, shouting from the rooftops about HCQ and ivermectin. These things are cheap. They're available. They're safe. They work. They save lives. I mean, you know, the, the, the misreporting and the, the, the censorship, that vital information is another crime against humanity, you know? So just as we had to talk about all that then, uh, in the face of COVID, we now have to talk about analogous uh, antidotes and remedies now that we're contending with this, um, horrific uh, die-off that's just begun, I'm afraid, as a result of this injection program, you know, which is, I never would have believed it, Whitney, three years ago, if somebody said this was coming down the line, I never would have believed it. But it's not, it's upon us now, you know, and, and uh, it's sundered so many relationships. Well, I think that's it's, true uh, for everyone, whether it's friends or family. I think a lot of us are... Um you know, sort of in, in that boat. But, you know, even though things look dire, as we've talked about in a little bit of the, the end here, there is still a lot that can be done and there is still a lot to be hopeful for. Um, and with that, um, I want to thank you so much, Mark, for uh, giving me so much of your time, um, c considering everything going on. Um, 
to talk about these really important issues. Uh, thank you for uh, your work over the past year and a half and before, of course, um, and for being a consistent voice um, about the tyranny that we are all facing, especially when there are so many, um, you know, people who have decided to shy away um, from discussing these topics because of the professional and personal risk um, involved in that. Uh, and also thank you to everyone uh, listening to this podcast and especially those who support it. Uh, the first few days as always are premium for subscribers to the podcast on Rockfan and through unlimitedhangout.com. After that, it's publicly available um, on those um, uh, platforms and other podcasting apps. Um, so please, if you found this uh, conversation to be compelling, I certainly thought so. Uh, please share it as widely as you can. And I would also encourage listeners to support uh, Mark's work. He mentioned his website earlier um, and also his uh, GoFundMe efforts to uh, stick it to the people that are libeling him in an attempt to uh, prevent professors like him telling their students to, you know, research and draw their own conclusions and analyze uh, propaganda as it's ongoing and things like that. I mean, we need more professors uh, like Mark in our universities, not less of them. So thanks again and uh, see you all in the next episode.